Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and not joining me on the line this week, we are <laughs> live from Pittsburgh, baby. I've got Ethan Sachs in the room. As a matter of fact, in his bedroom right That's now right. recording. Yeah, this is very special. This is where the magic happens, but it's not where the magic happens. You intimate, know what I mean? Intimate. <laughs> it is very intimate. Ben, it's been a lovely week with you joining me and my son and the crying and the drafting and the streaming. It's been uh, been a joy these past few days. Absolutely. We have talked more non-magic things in the last three days, I think, than we have in six years of podcasting. I was telling your wife, I feel like I, I know you. Yeah. I mean, I've also felt that way, you know, before this week, but it's true. I do, you know, I, I'm sure there are many people out there that can relate that, like, you have, especially for men, and not to, you know, make it about gender, but I feel like... I have a lot of male friends where it's all about activities or like, what's your, what are we going to do? And then after a few days, you're like, so how are you? You know? <laughs> yeah. This is the first time we've talked about non-magic stuff for an extended period of time. For, for sure. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about a lot of magic. We've done like, you know, three, eight hour streams <laughs> the past few days. We were driving to run some errands yesterday and I was like, you know, usually it's in these early weeks, we actually don't talk. Yeah. in midweek just like how our schedules work out and then it's really fun to get to catch up and and vibe or whatever and figure out where we're where we're at with the format and i was like oh man we're not going to get to do that this time like i i feel like we know what's up we know what each other's doing what each other's preferences are vices if you will perhaps <laughs> i would say vices for some of us and we're gonna we're actually gonna talk about some of those vices and we've also since our live episode that we did in vegas we've never done the podcast looking at each other before. So no, is... apparently we're starting a new chapter. Ethan professed to me that he has always wished that we would have done video. But again, per our relationship, he has never actually made that request to me because he assumed I would say no. So I think starting next week, I... we will be recording face to face. I mean, I think based on my knowledge of your um, fear, let's say, of change, <laughs> your strong dislike, your preference against, to use a magic term, yeah. uh, of change, I think it's fair to say that that would have been you would have gone I don't want I don't know I don't want to do that I think that's how it would have been received I disagree I think I would have said sure let's do it in fact I wondered I was waiting for you to propose like after we recorded <laughs> with Charlie when we did your Survivor podcast, yeah. so I was like, oh, this video is nice. And I bet we would talk over each other less and so there would be less editing. I was I was waiting for you to make the proposal and you never did. And you just thought you can't do it. That's not my area of expertise. You're the one who runs the Zencaster. Anyway, we're, we're in the weeds here. We're in the weeds. We got to talk <laughs> Lord of the Rings. We've titled this episode the extended edition because I think as we as we maybe teased, maybe we danced around a little bit last week, or maybe this was just on stream, that I think we're in another avoiding the aggro trap kind of format. Not that aggro can't win, but the control is back kind of with a vengeance. I think extending the game is kind of where you want to be. I co-sign that 100%, and I think we're going to get into it, but there's just not a lot of easy ways to accrue card advantage. So once you do it, if you're doing it and your opponent isn't, you're pretty darn far ahead. Yeah, so we're going to talk about all that good control stuff. A fun new little five-color brew kind of deck that we got going on that, that Ben will be uh, his skeptical self about. So let's get to some housekeeping. Things first, things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. A lot of great stuff over at the Patreon page. Ben, we haven't even announced it. I mean, we are recording earlier than we usually do. Ooh. But when the episode comes out, we will have just been off the heels of the Arena Open for the end of this month. 
which is a great time to be in on the Lord's Limited Discord, which is what everybody who gets back to the Patreon gets access to. It's a great spot, especially for day one for those sealed pools. Let's say you're like, look, I only want to fire one bullet, two bullets. You're not a, a lunatic like me and Ben when you fire. <laughs> you're just like, look, money is no object. I can't wait to bleed as many gems as possible and you know, open a pool and drop and open a pool and drop until I get the nuts. If you have just like those few precious entries, I only have the time for for one entry. Well, get a lot of people, get a lot of eyeballs on that sealed pool and see how how many tweaks and little changes you can make to get those seven wins or those four wins if you're going to best of three. So you can get to day two and get that top, top prize of $2,000. Just a ton of other great conversations happening in the Discord, a fantastic community of like-minded, limited individuals. And as you move up the reward tier rankings, you can get access to a bunch of other great perks as well, all the way up to monthly coaching sessions with me and Ben. So if any or all of that sounds of interest to you, or you just want to get back to the show, that's the place to do so. And we also want to welcome our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming James, Russell, Todd, John, Christopher, Sidler, Nick, and Aaron. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, I cannot say thank you enough. And again, if money is no object to you, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Please, <laughs> coolstuffinc.com, where they've got cool stuff in stock. You can line your closet with booster boxes. And while you do, use code LOL, all caps, when you check out to let them know that we sent you over there and get 5% off your order. So, Please, Tales of Middle-Earth, Lord of the Rings, banger of a set. Put one of those in the closet or five or ten, you know. Get those stuffed in there and get checkout code LOL when you do so. All right, Ben, if there's one thing limited players love to do, it's cut lands. I think that is true. Maybe it's just Twitch chat. Maybe it's not limited players. I don't know. Twitter's, <laughs> Twitter people are just always like, why not 16 lands here? It's like, well, I like to cast my spells on time, you know call me crazy. So we've got these mana cyclers. There were a lot of questions going into the set, like what's the difference coming off of Marks in the Machine, of the two mana cyclers that we had at Common, into this set where we have the same cycle, but they're one mana instead of two to go find that basic land. We knew that one was less than two, obviously. I think these cards, as we said, initially overperformed our expectations from early access. But we really haven't dove into the like intricacies of them or the nitty gritty of like, so when you have these in your deck, what does that mean for your mana base? And when do you want them? And which ones are better, et cetera? So I'm going to throw this over to you and you can start the conversation because I know Lorian Revealed is the love of your life in this format. It's a good one. Yeah, I think if I were power rankings, you know I love a good ranking. I think I would go Lorian Revealed 1. That's the blue draw three cards. Second, I would go Generous End. That's the 5-7 that makes a food token. Third, the black one, Troll of Kaza Doom. That's the 6-5 that has to be blocked by at least three creatures. Fourth, Eagles of the North. Really less interested. Like, there's kind of a line yeah, after the troll for me. I agree. And then Eagles in the North in fourth. That fetches up a planes, gives your team plus one, plus oh, and first strike. And then really not interested much at all in Oliphant, personally. That's the red one. The 6-4 trample that gives another creature plus two, plus oh, and trample when it attacks. So a lot of questions here. One is that there's there's been a comparison made, and I think an apt comparison to these and the MDFCs from Zendikar Rising. That, like, you know, they are kind of split cards in a way, and you can think of the pay one to go find a land similar to, you know, the backside of the MDFC is being ETB tapped lands. I think that's a pretty good comp for those kinds of cards. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair consideration for sure. So what does that mean for your mana base? Like, you know, we were streaming today and someone was suggesting just like throwing an Oliphant in our blue red deck and cutting a land going to 16 lands. And both you and I, I couldn't quite put it into words, but both you and I felt like that's not really something I'm interested in doing, largely because I feel like the split there, if we're thinking about them as MDFCs, the split there is is probably something like 95-5. Like, I am going to be 
mountain cycling that Oliphant so much of the time that I might as well just have that on tap land because I think the amount of times where I'm going to happily be casting it as a 6-4 are pretty slim to none. Yeah, I think if you're casting it as a 6-4, something's usually gone wrong, specifically <laughs> with the Oliphant, because if your opponent can't deal with that, like their deck's probably not great and you should be winning anyway. Tapping out for a 6-4 Oliphant does not feel good to me, especially when you're playing red decks. It's the one that's most out of place, I think, with what its color is trying to do in general. I agree. I mean, just like there there is so much tempo as having a coaching session this evening with someone with a blue-red deck. And I think it's fair to say for for now, at least, blue-red is the deck I want to face the least in this format. Every time my opponent has like Island Mountain, I just feel like, oh, everything I have is going to get countered or bounced and they're going to turbo ring tempt and I'm just going to die to their burn spells or whatever. You know, it's it's a deck that plays really well on a lot of different axes. And I just think that like that kind of deck is not interested in the 6-4, as you said, but also that kind of deck interacts so favorably with these giant monsters, right? If like you're like, ah, going to slam this and fingers crossed, you know, that doesn't usually end up very well for you. Yeah, I think if I had a choice of getting into a deck right now too, it would be blue-red. And partially this is a good place, I think, to talk about the state of the format because we've done a lot of drafting the last few days. And I think it's a lot harder to soft bias or draft with preferences towards the Mardu colors. Black specifically. Yeah, and actually end up with a deck that gets there. And I think because Black's more contested seemingly, I think the last few days, Blue-Red is a great place to end up because you can still get some red cards and then Blue is still, I think, a little bit underappreciated at the moment. And I have to say, we will be talking about Green in just a little bit. And I think it's a good spot to talk about Generous End here and just sort of how... Green decks in general with Generascent and many partings get to cheat on lands in that way. Many partings being the single green sorcery that can go uh, search up a basic land and you get a food token. Um, so I've been basically, I haven't gone sub 15 lands yet. Have you? Mm, I have done 14 once. Okay. I think. Okay. So around that, and you can, I've seen, I've seen 14 landers before. We have seen some scuttle on maybe going less, like maybe we're back in Aquaria days with all the one mana cyclers. I'm not there yet. I'm not buying that. Because I think a lot of the considerations for these mana cyclers as split cards has to be in their casting cost. It's not quite like the MDFCs where it was like, well, this can be your two drop or if you draw it late or whatever, you know, like that you really only have one spot on the curve for these spells and they're largely a little clunky for their cost i would say i mean talking about the oliphant specifically even eagles of the north you know not effects that you really want so i'm thinking generally like two of these equals a land and then sometimes you're in a spot where you have like four and that's often in these like maybe some multicolor soup decks maybe you've got some reanimation i think some of that is a consideration like if you're running tale of tenuvial certainly rise of the witch king that's the black green signpost that you know has each player sacrifice a creature and if you have sacrificed a creature you get to return another creature from your graveyard to the battlefield um sam's desperate rescue even it's nice to just be able to cycle a fatty early and then go, hey, I'm actually going to grab that on turn, whatever, three or four while I'm double spelling to set myself up to cast it later. And then we haven't really talked yet about why Lorien Revealed is so good is that like five mana to draw three is just bonkers. It's a spell that matters. Blue cares about spells in the yard specifically. So like cycling that, getting it back with the Treason of Isengard, that's just, it's just checks so many boxes all while being a great split card. Yeah, and I think one thing too, a question that I've gotten a lot from streaming by myself and here this week as well is, you know, what do you guys think about the land cyclers? Is it a one-to-one? What's the what's the heuristic? And I don't think there 
is one per se necessarily. I think most commonly with the land cyclers, I've been drafting a lot of decks that really want to hit their land drops. Right. So my most common use of them has been 17 lands plus whatever land cyclers I have, you know, more along like the MDFCs from Zendikard where you have like, you know, kind of 20 mana sources, but you also have them as spells if you want to, specifically because Lorien Revealed is such a good spell. Like it really does do double duty Mm -hmm. as a land and a spell. But there's some decks that don't want to hit land drops. And I think once you're in those archetypes that don't want to hit land drops as much, I'm much more willing to go 16 and one land cycler or 16 and two land cyclers. But a lot of it is you need to think about what your deck wants. And I would say it ties in directly to how much your deck wants to hit land drops. And the more your deck wants to hit land drops, the less you should be willing to shave a land for a mana cycler. Does your curve in general impact, I've talked about, you know, that having some reanimation effects might affect me wanting those. Like once I have a Tale of Tenuvial, I mean, ideally I don't want to just reanimate Eagles of the North, but the value of those mana cyclers, whether they are just Eagles in that white color or something a little better, does really go up because it allows you to play Tail on curve without having something died already, you know? Right. Um, What does other six drops in your curve or on in your deck due to your desire for those mana cyclers so something like the voracious fell beast the six mana four four flyer you have like that in your deck are you like less interested in troll of casa doom you know a little bit but more that i just wouldn't run 16 lands in troll i would be more inclined to run 17 in troll and it would be more probably in that instance you know, could take or leave troll once I've got other six drops. Yeah, that's that's how I feel too. And I think this is a great time as you're talking about like all of your decks or a lot of the decks that you and I are gravitating towards, a lot of the decks that we're going to be outlining today or the philosophy we're outlining today. The reason you want to hit land drops is because ring tempting is so good. <sighs> ring tempting is so good. And ring tempting is so good. It, it's not like blood. It feels like blood, right? Like second level, second chapter, whatever we're calling it, of the ring tempting you is not quite like blood because one blood token did the thing, right? But you have just like a couple instances of ring tempting, you're not getting to that second level reliably. So you have to have more. But then the more you have, the better it gets, the more it becomes even kind of a game plan and the more reliably you can get to that second level and get those loots going, which is why the extra lands feel even better because I I just don't feel like I flood in this format almost ever. And I feel like if I do, either it was a tough draft or it's my fault. Well, and that's largely due to the style of decks you're drafting, right? Because I definitely have flooded when I've been black, red or red, white or whatever. And I haven't gotten a lot of ring tempting. It's so key. I think one of the common sentiments that I've seen in our discord and just people in Twitch chat as well, you know, like wanting a place to vent or whatever, (laughs) saying something like, you know, drafted a sick looking red, black deck, went one, three, no idea what happened. And this might not necessarily be that, but my my theory is that I think those people don't have enough ring tempting. If you're not aiming towards the late game, if you're, let's say, an aggro deck, or let's say you're even a, a normal mid-range deck that's just you know capable of coming out fast, but also grinding a little bit, you have to get to level two of the ring to be able to compete with the control decks or other people that are playing the same style of deck as you. Because if you're both on red-black and one of you's on chapter two of the ring and one of you isn't, The person that's on chapter two is significantly favored as far as their draw steps go. Well, and tack on to that. I mean, that's why the instance, having multiple instances of ring tempting is good, repeatable ones like Gollum Patient Plot or whatever, thinking about red, black, that like you don't want to feel like, to use your phrase of glass cannon, that your opponent can just go, oh, I'm going to, oh, you you have a ring bearer on chapter two, I kill it. And then you're like, ah, I'm out of luck. I can't 
re-up that. It's like, no, you're just worried now that you're going to have to deal with another derpy one power creature, you know, that is going to be a threat in that sense. Not a threat to your life total, but a threat to your life total in the long-term sense of the game because of the value of that card selection. Right. And I think we're going to get into this later in the episode, but one thing that has really struck me and we've been talking about is it's hard to get card advantage in this format. It's not easy to accrue card advantage. And if you're not making a concerted effort, I think for the first time in a while, you can run out of cards. Yes. And the ring is such a huge part of not running out of cards. I think that is the first and foremost way to not run out of the cards. But again, like you alluded to with blood, you have to do work. Like with blood, it was stapled on the cards and it just kind of happened. Mm -hmm. You need to get like six, seven, eight, nine ring tempting cards in your deck for it to really do the thing. And especially the ones that tempt twice or have a turbo tent. Yes. Like those are those are game changers. Yeah, like Frodo, Baggins, or Bilbo. These are the green-white signposts and blue-red signposts, respectively. Yeah, those are those feel like game plans and just really tough cards, almost kind of like must-kills, even though Bilbo is it's a must-kill, but I don't really want to because then that gets you to the next level. I have to time it well, you know, just another notch in blue-red's belt there, I think. But yeah, and, but the interesting thing about it, so it gives you card selection, but not card advantage, which kind of is a tease or a tie-in for what we're going to talk about later with the control decks is why two-for-ones and, and more three-for-ones, thinking about Lorien Revealed, are so important is because of what that lets you do. The, the amount of options you have for when you are looting every turn with the ring temptation, right? Mulligans have felt much more punishing because of that. Now you're down one less, one less rectangle. I got to say <laughs> you're, you're down one less rectangle to mess around with as you're moving things from library to hand to graveyard, figuring out what you want to do with those cards. Well, and I think too, when we get into control decks, the ring tempting is a part of the control decks too. And it's often a convenient finisher for control decks you know, that's one of the, we're going to outline kind of what a control deck consists of, but if you've got enough ring tempting, your control deck always has built-in finishers thanks to the ring bear, you know, kicking in for four a turn once you get to level four. Yeah, yeah. Really excited to talk about that. We'll take a quick ad break and we'll be back with a really good deck to draft and a not so good deck <laughs> to draft. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Ben, having you visit this past week was a blast. We're usually all business when we sit down to record the podcast, so it was great to have time to get to know each other on a more personal level. Absolutely. We really covered a lot of ground talking about our relationships with our friends, siblings, and parents, and how we navigated some huge decisions in our lives like transitioning from job to job, city to city, and even for some of us, into fatherhood. In life, we're sometimes faced with those tough choices, and the path forward isn't always clear. But just like in magic, you try to make the best decision possible with the information you have. And just like in magic, it's helpful to have someone to bounce your thoughts or ideas off of. Someone reviewing your draft or gameplay can offer insights that in retrospect might be obvious, but in the moment you just aren't able to map out. Therapy is great for getting an outside perspective and BetterHelp gives you that on an incredibly convenient platform. It's entirely online and perfectly suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lords today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Lords. And now back to the show. All right, Ben, we're going to kick things off. We're, we're gonna, this is a little appetizer before the main course. I, I got to ch chat about my new favorite deck. Five Color Legends. 
please let's do it let's, let's get into it let's do it i know you, you're gonna ben's gonna temper your expectations he's gonna try and, and cool my uh my excitement for this deck so i gotta say great hall of the citadel is kind of real now I, I think i was not the first person to sort of figure this out or whatever and certainly part of my keying into this card and we should say what it is this is the common land taps for a colorless or you can filter so one and tap it to add two mana of any color to cast legendary spells only um, which is largely going to be creatures, though, as we played with. There, there is an enchantment you can cast that'll get you some planeswalkers out there, whatever. So Great Hall of the Citadel really does let you play kind of the best cards. And you'd seen it on the other side of the battlefield a lot. You know, this is a classic Ben Wernie gets tilted from like, <laughs> you know, opponent goes like Forest, Plains, Great Hall, Bilbo. And you're just like... Excuse me? What just happened? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've seen it enough on the other side of the battlefield that I wanted to try it out. And it really does a ton, right? A lot of the best uncommons and creatures in general and like rares that aren't bombs but are powerful. Um, oh, also speaking of rares that are bombs, Mea Culpa, Orcish Bowmaster, a bomb. It, it is It's a bomb. A bomb. I had the opportunity of just firing this off against my opponent's Mordor Muster, kill a 1-1 a mass, kill the 1-1 a mass coming. It just, it's very, very good. I'm sorry. It is a bomb. It's true. Um, but yeah, a lot of the best uncommons and creatures in general are legendary. So as long as you pick a good open color pair, and as we always talk about on the show, when we're talking about multicolor soup decks, we're not talking about 666 mana bases, folks. We're not talking about five, five, three, four mana bases. You're you're getting eight sources of your two main colors. I think green, white, honestly, yes, I am saying you can put green cards in your decks this week. I think green, white is generally going to be a good base, but but you often want to find a good open two color base. A few citadels, or if you're me, one citadel that makes its way into your opening <laughs> hand uh, every game. And some other fixing, which is, an, uh, again, why green is so good, why the, the land cyclers are so good. Um, but a lot of the fixing plus um, the Great Hall specifically can get you there. Now, we did point out in the Crash Course that there's a lot of fixing in the set, but we weren't sure if you wanted to splash. This is the deck to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you want to see the decks in action, you can check out the VODs. You know, you yeah. and I have streamed up a storm. You will probably not see the advice about mana bases that you just heard put into practice in some of these decks. Mm. We were getting a little lost we in the lost. sauce. Experimenting. Experimenting. Yeah, discovering. Yes. The sacrifices we make for the listeners. Losing our gems so you don't have to. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, green is an obvious base for the deck. Thanks to, you get many partings. You get Woe's Pathfinder. That's the two mana 1-1 one, one dork that taps for a mana of any color. You often have ring tempting right you want that that's partially because frodo baggins that's the green white one three legend whenever it or another legendary creature enters the battlefield under your control the ring tempts you and frodo has to be blocked if able if it's your ring bearer also an uncommon we found out this weekend well some of us already knew that but yes <laughs> uh yes it is an uncommon so uh frodo is probably the best non-rare for the deck so you have a lot of ring tempting inherent to the deck that you have i mean bilbo as well is great so inherited envelope can be fine, right? That tempts and, and fixes for you. Shire Terrorist, Shire Scarecrow, uh, maybe Wizards Rockets. I'm not crazy about all any of those, really. I think Shire Terrorist is like fine because you often are running basics because of many partings. But you do have access to quite a bit of fixing that you can get late. And as long as you do have a lot of legends, key is you do have to have a lot of legends. Great Hall is excellent fixing for your threats. Yeah, and I think this is a deck that wants land cyclers as well, too, yes. specifically the 5-7. Yes, specifically the 5-7, just because 
you know, flyers are a problem. A big five, seven reach is great. Getting that food token is great to buffer your life total because you're often in base green, white. You have maybe some food synergies with rosy cotton of Southland or whatever. Um, when to pick Great Hall is a little tricky. We'll look at sort of an idealistic draft log at the end of this for drafting this kind of deck. Um, I think you may have to start, like in my mind, I'm like, oh, this card wheels. Like what deck wants this? That hasn't really been the case a lot of the time. Like people are snapping these up or I'm sort of, all right, pack one, pick one. I'm taking this legend and it doesn't matter what my base colors are because I see the great hall in the pack. I'm going to wheel it and it doesn't wheel. Could be an anomaly. Don't have a big enough sample size to figure it out. I, you know, could check the Alsa, Ben. <laughs> could check the Alsa. Could get yeah. some some data on our, on our, on our side. You but know I love a good data. I do know. But I do think that you may have to take them a little earlier. Ideally, you could wheel them at the end of the pack. But maybe it's something where you take it early out of weak packs. I was trying to equate it to... You know, for, for the boomers out there, cons of Tarkir drafting when in pack one, you snap up all the dual lands and then just reap the rewards of getting to play like multicolor morphs in pack two and pack three. That may be an option here as well, out of weak packs, especially now that maybe the best color, best cards are more contested. Yeah. And so for the listener, let's say you want to draft this deck. I think you would attest to this too. We tried to draft this deck a lot or like give ourselves outs to draft the deck a lot. We've three, three, four, three, two, three, yeah, a lot with this. So not necessarily tier one, but I do think the, we also seven, and seven, two, we also seven, and seven, two. Yeah. Yeah. That was what got the party started. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And then the party, you know, party kids left and like, you know, there are a few people drinking leftover (laughs) way too late. Exactly. We'll hang over the next morning, but I do think the format is shifting and decks like this, and maybe not necessarily going all in on great hall, the Citadel, but what we've seen the last few days. And again, we're recording, prior to the weekend when you're going to hear this, yeah, it's tougher to get into streamlined decks. I think people are more aware of what the premium cards are and are snatching them up. And as that's been happening, you have to branch out into a splash more often and opportunities to draft this style of deck, I think are going to be available. And certainly something, it's a tool that you need to have in your toolbox to be able to do when it presents itself to you because you don't always get, you know, the opportunity to take black cards or to get a streamlined blue red deck and knowing what to do when you're getting a bit of messy signals and what the powerful cards are. And this is, I think, an opportunity to win. And I think we would encourage this drafting is that you should be taking the powerful cards early because there are not a lot of them. When you end up with them that don't go in the same deck together, Mm -hmm. this is a way to put them in a functional shell together that is quite good, I think. Yeah. Well, and another benefit of that, well, and another benefit of this style of deck is that you can reap the benefits of setting up your mana early because a lot of the cards that are good in the set or like more powerful are still not like bombs that you open up pack two and you're like, oh, I'm jumping ship for this. Like think about King of the Oathbreakers. That's the two white black three, three flyer. Um, when it or a spirit you control is targeted by a spell your opponent controls, it faces out. And when it faces back in, you get a one, one spirit. That card's very powerful. But it's not like, it's not even like Orcish Bowmasters level, but even Orcish Bowmasters is, is, it's tough to jump ship for that. If you're set up to be blue red and you open King of the Oathbreakers, you're probably not scrapping those picks for King because King is not that busted that you feel like you can cobble together, you know, 22 picks to support it. So if people open those cards and they're not exactly those colors, they're going to get past to you. And Great Hall of the Citadel helps you cast them. It's just like, oh, this is basically a colorless card if I have three Great Halls or whatever. Right. That's the beauty of the power level setting on yeah. the format is that 
the cards are good and they're the best things in the format, but they're not quite good enough to abandon ship form. Exactly. When you've got a, you know, normal looking draft going. And, you know, it's not just things like Frodo or some of the rares or whatever. And in Great Hall, there are just like some sprinklings of cards that that care about legendaries. Like we had, we had just like the dream of, you know, there's Mirror of Galadriel. It's a two mana artifact. Um, You pay five, tap it, you scry one, then draw a card and it costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you have. And then we had Ereth that can untap a permanent or untap two other legendary creatures. So great. Yeah, we also had that Ereth with Pippin, the blue-white rare that can protect stuff. So we had the ability to like, you could protect two things. You could use Pippin on something and then threaten Ereth as like a second Pippin activation. You could scry draw with the mirror, untap it with Ereth. And these are all largely, not Pippin obviously, but all largely cards that no one should in theory want though again mirror didn't wheel in one of our drafts today so it's tough to know i don't know what's happening out there well i would say my gut feeling is i'm curious to see what your reaction to this is because we haven't really floated this by each other i I think green is a legends deck more than it is a food deck and not even necessarily great hall yes but that green and green white specifically what it does best is legend synergies yes more than anything else yes but we just think about like what I mean, white gives you a lot of great stuff with like Rosie Cotton of South Lane, and there's a token stuff with Build a Pony. Samwise is great, and it utilizes all those cards that we we sort of had trouble being like, well, these are powerful. Even Tale of Tenuviel has like these are powerful, but these are not aggressive cards by any stretch, right? And so that fits into this idea of white green being a legends deck. It really takes advantage of, of Frodo in that way, which is excellent for it as a signpost for that deck. Um, but yeah, and then you get to sort of reap the rewards of these other sort of underrated cards. It's still a mystery to me about quite like where you're clocking great hall in pack one, or maybe it's a, I hope no, I hope no one opens great hall in pack one. I get myself into this deck and then fingers crossed that they're open later. I don't know. And, and, as we've seen, I think you don't need Great Hall if you're certainly uh, subscribing to what you're talking about with well, many partings get you there. Woe's Pathfinder gets you there. The Land Cyclers get you there. You can get there without the card. It's just it's just actually pretty darn good if your legend count is high enough. For sure. But I think more than anything, you know, people have talked about green being bad. And I think we, we even did last week. Like, yeah. stay away. I think it's more stay away from Mushroom Watchdogs green yes. than it is green as a whole color. And I... I still want to, I think if you're drafting to try to maximize your win rate, I still think you want to be pushed into green. But if you get pushed into green, this is where it's at, is the legendary matter stuff rather than green food yeah. mattering. Well, and, and and one of the great things, as we'll, we'll talk about when we get to the control decks, this this deck is a control deck at heart, right? Yeah. Um, and it gets its value. It doesn't quite get to do, maybe maybe if it is blue, it gets to do Lorien Revealed and Arwen's Gift. It doesn't quite get to do the massive like two for one, three for one things, but it does accrue uh, enough value plus do enough ring tempting that it's able to go toe to toe with those strategies. Cosine. Okay. Shall we take a look at a draft log? Let's do. All right. Pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. There is not many top commons. We've got a Torment of Gollum, three and a black sorcery target. Opponent reveals their hand. Choose a non-land card from it. That player discards the card amass two. Um, Woe's Pathfinder, we just talked about, but not wanting to take that early. I think let's shift to, there's really only one uncommon to talk about. The rare, as they usually are, is garbage. It's born upon a wind. One on a blue instant, you may cast spells this turn as though they had flash draw card. I only have eyes here for Gothmog, Morgul, Lieutenant. 
three and a black for a three, three legendary creature, human soldier. When it enters the battlefield, you amass orcs one and creature tokens you control have death touch. I mean, truly there's nothing, nothing in our top commons is in this pack. I trust you. Yeah. I'm in for a Gothmog Lieutenant. Cool. Pack one, pick two. Uh, we've got maybe a little bit more. No, that's really not an interesting pick either. There's a Dunblin Crabine, two and a black for a 1-1 one, one flyer when it comes into play UMass 2. One of the best black commons. Are you on this as the best black common currently? I am. I think Dunlin Crabine is more important than Claim the Precious. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so nothing else in contention there. Uh, there's a Lash of the Balrog as well at common, but we're taking Dunlin Crabine over that every time. Uh, in the uncommon slot, the rare is missing. In the uncommon slot, there's the Tale of Tenuvial. That's the white saga that you and I both love, but the data hates. And there's a Saruman's Trickery, one blue blue for an instant counter target spell, a mass works one. I think with Gothmog in the pile, it's an easy Dunlin Crabane. If this were pack one, pick one, do you take Trickery over Crabane? That's tough. I mean, that would be more of a... You, you have a read on the pulse of the format, and you're assuming that you're not going to be able to get into black, but... I don't know that I would be assuming that quite so hard yet. We I, might I be getting there, though. It's close. It's hard to yeah. say at this point, you know, when people are going to be hearing this, you know, a few days down the road. But I think I would still be on Crabane over Trickery. I I don't know. Me, personally, I would take Trickery. Uh, giving advice to people, I think I would say Dunlin Crabane. And, but do you feel like that's not good advice because you're, like, lost in the blue sauce still? Or you're just like... I don't trust people to draft blue as well as me. That sounds super arrogant when you put it that way, but I mean, pot call the kettle black, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think Saruman's Trickery is a less stable first pick than Dunlin Crabane. I think it's hard to go wrong with Dunlin Crabane. Well, that's what you were talking about, right? Of like, the black cards have a high floor... And not a low ceiling, but they're not going to do much more than that floor, right? The floor and the ceiling are the same. Saruman's Trickery has a higher ceiling and a lower floor. And it's going to like, you know, it being blue, blue is tough. It's like playing counter magic just for sort of requires you to construct your deck in a certain way and play in a certain way and know when to fire this off, etc. So like, I think it's fair what you're thinking if you don't have the guts to say it to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, so Saruman's Trickery for me, you plebs out there. Take Don Linkerby. There it is. Pack one, pick three of the following cards as options. The only black card in the pack is Sam's Desperate Rescue. Single black for a sorcery. Return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. The ring tempts you. We didn't talk about this. I mean, you did a little bit, but those land cyclers with Sam's Desperate Rescue, also so important to be able to fire that off, not just to pick up your creature again, but to give Sam's Desperate Rescue a target early to get the ring to chapter two earlier. It's a right. huge part of that piece of the puzzle. It's a really good point. So like, it's a card that... It's a card that I always want one copy of in my black decks. Sometimes happy to play two, depending on how much ring tempting I'm doing, how high my creature count is, maybe even how much. Because it's really, there's two factors there, which is that I want creature cyclers. I want the land cyclers for Sam's Desperate Rescue to always have a target early or to be more likely to have a target early. But I also want two drops so that when I do want to do the double spell thing on three, I have a thing to tempt with because it, it's not quite, I mean, it sort of is like birthday escape. I'm always fine to fire off on one because sure. Level one of the ring tempting is good, but it's not that important to have a target. I really don't want to get something that gives me ring tempting level two without a creature in play. I agree completely. And I will say, you know, we, I think, dismissed level one as not that important on our list of things. Uh -huh. I think in an earlier episode, and I think that is true early in the game, like you said. Yeah. As the game goes longer, 
that first rule oh. of the ring gets more and more and more important. The skulk matters more the longer the game goes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, not a ton of great commons. There's a many partings if you wanted to get into green. There's an improvised club, one on a red instant as an additional cost to cast it. You sack an artifact or creature and it deals four to any target. Looking at the uncommons, there's only two. Uh, there's ring sight, one blue black for a sorcery. The ring tempts you, search your library for a card that shares a color with a legendary creature you control. Reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle. We got a massive blowout with this the other day, right? You, your opponent cast this and you got to kill the creature out from under it. So they tempted, but then had nothing <laughs> no, in no play. Happening, so yeah. it was just three mana ring tempts. The opponent conceded. They did that concede. on the stack. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then I think the pick for the pack is build a pony. Three and a white for a 1-4 legendary creature horse. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you get two food tokens. You can sack a food until end of turn. Target creature you control uh, signs combat damage uh, equal to its toughness instead of its power. Bill is great and I think is clearly the best card in the pack and is enough better than Sam's Desperate Rescue that I feel fine taking it here as my first white card rather than get deeper into black. Right, and we've told the listeners we took Corbain last pack, right? We did, We yeah, locked yeah. that in? Yeah, so we've got Gothmog into Corbain into Build the Pony. And if Build the Pony was good, third pick. Build the Pony's pretty good fourth pick, and we see it again. Next to a card you're pretty high on, Landreval Horizon Witness. Four and a white for a three, four. I, I don't know if I would say that. Okay, a, <laughs> a card that Ben has um, cast not in some cast. games recently. <laughs> has cast in some games recently. This is a five mana, three, four flyer. Whenever two or more creatures you control attack a player, target attacking creature without flying, gains flying until end of turn. I mean, it's a problem. It's it is a, a problem. It's a big problem. If it goes uncontested, similar to Maneldor, the blue phantom monster, yes. the three and a blue three, three that can blink something when it connects. It's a similar problem, except it costs five. So yeah. not quite as good, but you get the extra point of toughness. It's fun. You also get the thing, you know, it happens immediately, right? It doesn't ha- Landreval itself doesn't have to attack for you to be able to give something flying. Correct. Um, those cards, I think, again, outclass a lot of the commons here. The best common of the bunch is Birthday Escape, single blue sorcery draw card, the ring tempts you. Only black card in the pack is Nasty End, one in a black instant as an additional cost to cast the spell, sack a creature. Draw two cards if the sacrificed creature was legendary. Draw three cards instead. A card we like, but not a card we're interested in taking this early. Yeah, I think as soon as I know I'm not blue, I'm pretty aggressively going after a nasty end. Not over something like Build a Pony, but it's Mm -hmm. a card I value very highly in black decks that don't have access to card draw through blue. Yeah, so taking Build a Pony number two here. A little, already kind of a little worried about my curve, right? Two Bills and Gothmog in the four drop slot. Not great. I'm happy that like, Sorry to say rectangles. I'm happy that all my cards make a ton of rectangles, right? Double Bill, Gothmog, and Dunland Corbain all play great in that space. Let's check out what's going on in pack one, pick five. Only white card, slip on the ring, blink a thing, ring tempts you. In white, Black Breath is the only black card, two and a black sorcery. Creatures your opponent's control get minus one, minus one until end of turn. The ring tempts you. You were so right about this card last week. This is like Fear Fire Friends or whatever. Like it's it's a mini version of Fear Fire Foes, but it's so good because it's exactly what you said, but just to reiterate about black decks get so much spot removal. That's great. But when your opponent goes rally into whatever quarrels end, if they're going wide in any way, you feel terrible. You also get overrun because you're like, claim the precious your one one question mark. So many times over the past few days streaming together, we have asked the other person, do we have a black breath in this deck? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And there have been times where we've said, no, it's in the sideboard. Haven't made that mistake. 
sense. Just I want I want one copy of this in all of my black decks. And some of the beauty is too these silver bullet esque cards. You're more willing to play because your deck, if you're constructing it properly, I think the way we're alluding to, where you're valuing ring tempting highly, so you can get those loots, so that you can compete into the late game. When it's not relevant, your deck should have a way to pitch it so that you can cash it in for another card. Which right. is why you're, if that didn't exist, you'd be much less willing, I think, to run Black Breath. Maybe still in control decks because it is containing something that you need to contain, but I think much less happily. I think, and I think the ring tempting being tacked onto this card is huge. For sure. Right? The fact, if it didn't have that, I think it might still be a necessary evil. But the fact that it does means that even when it's not like, oh my god, I got to blow them out massively, they went, whatever, Rohirrim Lancer into Rally at the Hornburg into something else that's an X1. At the times when they don't do that, and you just get to finish off something post-combat, or whatever, like, the fact that you still get the ring tempt makes that card worth it. Okay, those cards, not the best cards in the pack. There's a Rally at the Hornburg. Two mana make two one ones. Humans you control have haste until end of turn. There's a Lorien revealed. It's five mana draw three with Island Cycling one. And there's a Great Hall of the Citadel. The aforementioned land for the five color Legends deck. And need I remind you that three of your four creatures are Legends. Bill and Gothmog, both Legends. Yeah, I mean, let's say when we were drafting this, I think I first lobbied for Rally at the Hornburg, and you were like, no, not taking that card, not doing it, won't do it, won't have that here on my stream. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, can we take Lorien Revealed? And you were like, no, great, there's a great Hall of Citadel here, friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this was this was right off the heels of a deck where I wanted, I had one great Hall, wanted desperately to have more. Luckily, the one we had showed up quite a bit. We 7-0'd with the deck, and I was... You know, obviously, I was I was thirsty for more. It was, <laughs> it was hot, hot on the sauce. So I grabbed Great Hall of the Citadel. And I think, too, it's worth pausing here to note, I think if you make some different picks earlier, like let's say you take that Saruman's Trickery, mm. there's a world where you go Saruman's Trickery into Birthday Escape, into Lorien Revealed, and you're on pace to draft a normal-looking blue deck. I think So there's multiple routes you could have taken sure. to this draft, but I think given the picks we made with Black Black into Bill Bill, the Great Hall does make a lot of sense here. Yeah, for sure. So grab Great Hall number one and really immediately rewarded. There's Great Hall number two, pack one, pick six, in a pack with just truly nothing. Like, the best card in this pack is Enraged Horn, the four and a green, four or five trample ETB's ring tempts. I guess there's an inherited envelope, but again, like that's for this legendary deck. There's no white common, there's no black common, no white card or black card, period, in the pack. And the great thing about now I have double Great Hall, even though I do have two white cards and two black cards, I'm now I'm I'm somewhere else. You know, <laughs> I'm in the sixth dimension, baby. I have a different deck, right? I'm I could end up black white with this. But double Great Hall means the world is sort of my oyster at this point. It doesn't take much more for me to feel really comfortable. Of like, I can be Black X and these two bills are easily cast. Or I can be White X and this Gothmog is easily cast, you know? Like, it really does open up a whole new deck for you. And in this instance where you look at pack one, pick six, and you go, oh my gosh, there's no Black card, there's no White card. Have I, do I need to, like, jump ship for Enraged Horn and I'm just going to 3 You don't need to do that because Great Hall says, hey, here's a different deck for you to draft that doesn't make you scrap these early picks. Well, and I think there's different styles of this too, conceptually, to think about, right? What you were talking about, you're seeing all of a sudden you're playing 3D chess or you're seeing rainbow-colored glasses on. You could be, I think our first version of it was Black Legends. Yes. Like we were base black, not even really a second color. Yeah. And we're like, 
going, you know, a full three, four color splash with black as our base. Or you could, from this point, you could be black, green, splash the build. Mm-hmm. So you could be white, green, splash the black card. There's just a lot of different ways to conceptualize it. And Great Hall is the glue that holds the room together, along with, I think, especially if you're base green, the card that searches up a basic land and gives you a food token. Yeah, yeah. So we did end up in base green, black, um, touching, I think, yeah, all, all the colors. All, all the colors were here represented. Um, we had an awesome, like, very high creature count. Awesome card here that gets cast off of Great Hall of the Citadel, which is Doors of Durin. The three red green legendary artifact. Whenever you attack, you scry two, and then you may reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card, you put it onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking, and it just stays there. It's not like sacrifice at end of turn or goes back to your hand or put it on the bottom of your library. Whatever. No, it's just there. It's just on the battlefield forever. And that's another card that's so good with these giant mana cyclers. Yeah, for sure. If you want to draft around Doors of Durin, you need to get mana cyclers. In your yeah, game. just getting a free generous end onto the battlefield. Is so we sick. put Shelob into the battlefield yeah. <laughs> one time for free. The 8-8 spider. Ooh, yeah. That deck was a dream. Yeah, that deck was awesome. That did end up 7-2. So we'll have that full draft log for where uh, you download the show. All right, Ben. So that's that's one kind of deck. But let's zoom out even further and, and talk about why control decks are so well positioned in this format. Why extending the game is so powerful in this format. Yeah, and I think it's not even necessarily control decks per se. I think we're going to outline control decks. But for me, so much of it is just making sure that you're not playing some bad cards with no ways to find more cards or playing some aggressive cards with no ways to get more cards. There's so many times I'm playing red or white or black, and I feel like on turn four or turn five, maybe I have mulligan once and my opponent plays one card draw spell. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of it for me. Like my deck can't compete with that level of late game. So I think talking control decks in general, you've kind of got a very simple, straightforward thing here in the show notes, which is, you know, aggressive decks want the game to be over in as few turns as possible. And as control deck, regardless of what form it takes, is going to be more favored to win the longer game goes. And I think this is a great way to frame it because I definitely see people misusing this. You know, if, if I have a coaching session or a deck tech or whatever, someone in the Discord, you know, and I, and I want to really dig in a little bit, use it as a teaching moment. You know, sure, I could, it's a, to teach a person to fish kind of thing. Sure, I could just give you the, here are the swaps I would make. But it's often great to be like, what do you, how would you define this deck? And people say, well, this is a control deck. And I'm baffled because I see a great curve of creatures and I see some combat tricks or vice versa. They're like, this is an aggressive deck. And I'm like, you have five card draw spells. I don't know why you think this is an aggressive deck. So yeah, just thinking about it as the longer the game goes on, who is favored? The control deck. The shorter the, if the, the game ends in as few turns as possible, the aggro deck is going to win. And that's, I think you think about the decks in those terms. And again, I think we may be in a, not that mid range can't work because ring tempting really helps bridge the gap. Between the two, it's why I think it's such a good mechanic is it's good for the aggressive decks and it's good for the control decks as well, you know? Well, I mean, I think mid-range definitely works because red-black is a mid-range deck, yes, right? that's like, fair. I think red-black is the prototypical yeah. mid-range deck. It's all those, that's what a mid-range deck is, right? It's raw rate, like heavy yeah. hitters that can curve out and close the game out, but also just you've got great enough cards too and you've got a filtering mechanic in the ring tempting that you can go long to play yeah. both sides of the spectrum. I think red-black is that. To a T, I think. Yeah. So I think all three things are present, but I do agree mid-range decks have to have ring tempting right. to hang. Yes, for sure. And yeah. So what are the ingredients for a control deck? What makes you, I guess, feel confident that the longer the game goes on, you're going to win that game? 
Yeah, and we outlined this a little bit with blue white bass song loops last week, but that is like a very weird, it's a specific deck. kind of. It's deck. a very yeah. specific because what we're talking about here is like aside from, and we're not trying to say that aggro decks can't win in this format. It's not quite like avoiding the aggro trap of rivals of Ixalan throwback kind of thing, but there are just so like white black grinds and obviously all the blue decks i think fall under this umbrella blue black and blue red and blue white and it's not that these decks can't curve out but that they're so well equipped for the game to go long that i think more often than not that's where you want to position yourself in this format well and red white too is an excellent aggro deck when it's drafted well but i think specifically right now also it's harder to get the aggressive decks because and no knock against data but like the data is through the roof on the aggro cards right now i think from people feasting week one and a half ish Mm -hmm. through the format and it's tougher to get ideal versions of those decks yes and the the suboptimal aggro deck or the suboptimal mid-range deck folds pretty easily i think to decks that are trying to play to the late game in the format well and that's why and if you have the good versions like you're giving those control decks a run for your money for sure well and that's why blue is so well positioned right now is because Blue got lumped into, this is a Mardu format, blue and green are in last place. Whereas like green, I feel like with this five color legends idea, I feel like I've keyed into green in some way, but like green really was in last place in my mind. But blue, I think, especially how we were framing it last week, you're like, well, if you think about blue in this way, blue really is number two in this spot, but that's not how I think it's being perceived at large. So you can really capitalize on Mardu overdrafted, blue is there for the taking. Yeah, and I think that's why we're seeing such an influx of blue and red decks, blue red specifically at High Mythic, because those people have figured that out yeah. and are you know drafting the best archetype they can, which right now I think is blue red for a lot of folks. I think so too. So yeah, so there's a lot of moving. You know, it's not just like okay, aggro deck, fifteen plus creatures, couple of removal spells, couple creature augmentations, call it a day. The recipe for control decks are a little bit more complex. Right. And I think going back to the blue red deck too, we've alluded to this a little bit, but blue red can play two ways, right? There's blue red ring tempting, which I think is a mid range deck, almost like a tempo. It's almost aggro. It's almost aggro. Some of the the starts are very aggro. But then you could also do blue red spells. And the finisher of choice there is Gandalf Sanction. It's the one blue red for a sorcery and it deals damage to a creature equal to the number of instant sorceries in your graveyard and excess damage is dealt to that creature's controller. That is your finisher of choice in those blue red decks. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So back to the original, you know, we're talking control. Why do you want to build a control deck? The first thing is you want a reason for the game to go long. So maybe your first pick is a Gandalf sanction. Maybe your first pick is the blue-white rare Faramir that, you know, every turn you accrue advantage as the game goes long. But you want cards that play into the late game and are more powerful the game goes on. And also, you know, to borrow an LR concept, quadrant theory, right? Cards that are good, you know, developing, parody. You want cards that are good when you're behind or they can catch you up from being behind so that you can stabilize and then win with your more powerful or more expensive cards than the opponent is casting. So you need the first, the first reason to draft control is you need a Um, reason to do it. Right. Yeah. What's going to happen. Okay. The game goes long. Now what? Right. So are you going to win? And in blue white last week, it was this weird convoluted loop your deck. That's doing way more work than you need to in a prototypical control deck. Yeah. So maybe it's a bomb rare. Maybe it's, great quality on some more expensive cards. Maybe you got ways to two for one your opponent. Cause again, those are few and far between and you know, landing a couple two for ones going to be advantaged as the game goes longer. Next thing you need is defensive speed. And again, to borrow an LR concept, that's the first place I heard this, which yeah. is, you know, playing a control deck doesn't mean only playing expensive cards. You're playing 
cheap cards along your curve as well. But rather than wanting to attack with those cards, you're trying to defend. You know, maybe you've got some two mana one fours. That's not really a card in this format, but cards with higher toughness and cards that block well and, you know, maybe have a mana sink as the game goes longer. Well, and one of the things that's so unique about this format, and I think why we feel so strongly about control decks being well positioned, is those bodies play double duty thanks to ring tempting, right? That these two mana one threes are good blockers early for the aggro decks. They're also good attackers early when you get ring temp level one. And they're also incredible threats late when you're up to ring temp level four. Right. So imagine Peller Gear Survivors from blue. That's the one on a blue one three taps to add a mana for spells. You can pay six mana tap it to mill the opponent three. That checks all of those boxes, right? right? It is a defensive body late in the game, wears the ring excellently. It's a defensive body that will ramp you if you're casting spells at instant speed, certainly while it's still playing defense, or you can just use it as a mana dork. And then late in the game, I think rarely comes up, but there's been times I've had to kill my opponent's Peller Gear Survivor yeah. because the six mana tap and your opponent three is going to close out the game in a control mirror. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And a card that I think we sort of wrote off because previous versions of that, like Vodalian Arcanist or whatever, these like two mana, one, three, blue mana dorks only for spells, Survivor is the benefit of, hey, you can tap for a mana of any color. That's great, obviously. But still, those have largely underperformed, even when blue-red spells is a supported archetype. But because of all of those other things you listed, and because of how well control is positioned, Survivor just shines in this set. Absolutely. And I think the next piece is removal, right? Your opponents are going to be playing creatures to try to kill you. They're going to have rares. They're going to have creatures that give them an advantage as the game goes longer. And you need ways to get those off the battlefield. And notice... I said off the battlefield. The aura removal. Oh my god. Not cutting it. No, not at all. We said it last week. We still see it, so we're going to say it again. Our work here is not yet done. Yeah. Do not play the aura spells in the set. If you come back, if we, if we come back next week and haven't seen a Fog of the Barrow Downs, I think we can just retire, right? We just say, yeah, podcast we'll, is over. See you next set. <laughs> yeah. Next thing, this is kind of a more niche aspect of it. I don't think this is a must-have, but counter magic, I think, traditionally is part of control decks. So Glorious Gale in this format, specifically something like Saruman's Trickery is excellent. An ability to, once you're stable, have a card in hand that says, no matter what the opponent draws, I am okay. You know what's really interesting is that there isn't a negate in the format. I wonder if it would have been too good. Like, there are so many times where I want a negate kind of effect because it feels similar to black breath black the, breath it feels silver yeah. bullety of like i really want this and in the times when it's not good i could either pitch it or the times where it's not good i'm probably winning anyway right yeah i don't know that's just interesting to me but yeah saruman's trickery for that reason being able to counter those like okay i've got a game breaking spell horses of brunin or whatever um it's a it's a powerful effect and the next thing is card advantage because, you know, your your job is to blank your opponent's stuff, right? You've got these defensive speed creatures, you've got this removal, you've got this counter magic. Largely, you're trading one for one, although there is another concept for control decks called virtual card advantage that, again, credit to LR here. Like, let's say you've got a three mana two four and it's holding off your opponent's two one, they're two three and they're three three. Like you're kind of virtually three for wanting them there. So that's that's something else to look out for for defensive speed, just kind of another concept to get those juices flowing in your brain for how to build control decks. But you want card advantage because ostensibly you are one for wanting a lot. And then casting an Arwen's gift or casting a Lorian revealed after you're stable, let's say you're in blue black, then you three for one your opponent. 
and then you're ahead and your deck ostensibly at that point is favored in the late game. So figuring out how to win from there is pretty trivial most of the time. Yeah, agreed. Lastly, and again, I think this is not a mandatory piece for control decks, but life gain certainly doesn't hurt because a lot of times maybe you take some hits and your life total precariously low. Red certainly in this format has some ways to deal two to the face with the uncommon or deal four. You know, when they chuck a creature, sacrifice creature, deal four to the dome with the one and a red spell. There's ways to, you know, push the last points of damage through also with the Skulk ability on the ring. Like you're not always stable Mabel. So life gain certainly in this format I like. And again, cards that catch you up from behind as well. So if you're thinking quadrant theory when you're evaluating cards, cards that are better when you're behind, those are the types of things you want to include in control decks. So that's the recipe for control success or a loose recipe for control success there. So what makes control the best it's been in a while here? We were talking about this yesterday. We we're trying to say like, is it because aggro isn't as good? And I don't think that's the case. I think the aggro decks hum along quite well. I think, you know, if Mardu flavors that are slanted that way, all do excellently in that respect, but the lack, and this took me a while to sort of wrap my, my head around it, but the lack of game breaking bombs really means there are very few cards that invalidate board states that you as the control player have carefully worked hard to stabilize against or slowly mount a resource advantage on. You know, we were uh, playing side by side last night and you got got by a card that I had not seen cast yet, but was quite powerful, Spiteful Banditry, X red red for an enchantment. ETBs, it deals X damage to each creature and then whatever text about creatures dying, you get treasures. But, you know, other than that, there aren't good sweepers in the format. There's a Black Saga that's not quite good. There's the white spell that you know kills things that are power three or greater. Just not consistently good sweepers. But Spiteful Banditry, as, as I, you know, we, was evidence in that game, and I'm not surprised, is quite strong, but it's a mythic. There's not many sweepers. You're not going to play around it, right? It's not a set where, like, whatever, Hour of Devastation comes to mind, where there's just, like, eight sweepers in the format, and you constantly were thinking about, can I overextend? Should I overextend? What do I need to do with these things? But there's not a lot of cards like Spiteful Banditry. And we were just talking about one of the reasons that the multicolor deck works is because you can get past rock solid B pluses like King of the Oathbreakers that may even be A minuses, you know, in the right deck, in a deck that can cast it on curve, but people aren't jumping ship for that kind of card. So the lack of those kinds of effects means that your board state isn't getting invalidated as much as it would be in, you know, sets that we've seen time and time again. Well, and the other piece of it, and we alluded to this earlier in the episode as well, is that for the first time in a long time, it's actually possible to run out of gas yes. if you don't build your deck right. Like, And control decks feast on that, right? So there's no reason to not play aggro when your aggro deck never runs out of steam, right? That's one of the reasons in Eldrain why aggro is great, because you got adventure. Yes. And then you were never running out of gas. You have so- to play 28 spells in your aggro deck, right? <laughs> right. Like- right. So control, I think, is better here because you're feasting on people potentially that aren't building their decks right. And even if they do, if you land enough two for ones and three for ones, eventually your opponent will run out of steam. Yeah. Well, we were, and we were talking about this yesterday in the car. I was like, okay, so like when was the last time this uh, control was good? Cause it's been a while. I was like, it can't really be all the way back to rivals of Ixalan or whatever, when we did our avoiding the aggro trap thing. So you just pulled up the list of the most recent sets and you were like just rattling off the reason. So if we, if we alternate here with March of the machine, there was Incubate, that's a mana sink, there's battles. There were so many ways 
to give people two for ones. Well, and bomb rares. Yeah, we everywhere. Yeah. Right, for sure. So prior to that, Frexy all be one. There wasn't time for the card advantage. There's virtual card advantage in the sense of like, oh, you have four cards left in your hand and you're dead. <laughs> right. right? Yes, yeah. that format was too fast for the, the lack of gas to matter. Brothers War, everyone got card advantage from Unearth, right? There was a colorless thing that was basically the best thing to do that gave everyone two for ones plus. And then Dominar United, which was a huge favorite of mine. Control decks were viable, but there I would say that was a control format. Not like we're people didn't appreciate control. I would say the format pushed you towards the late game. And again, no way anyone was running out of cards there. So you're less incentivized to try to do that type of strategy because everyone has access to all those cards. Right. There were like red, green domain aggro decks or whatever, but largely, you know, think about Phyrexian Espionage as like the three mana draw to, or they discard a thing if you kick it, or Herborg Repossession as the black with green kicker to get back two things from your graveyard. Like kicker really gave everyone that card advantage. Think about Streets of New Capenna, Connive as a built-in mechanic for filtering and Inspiring Overseer as like the best mythic common of the format. So just a built-in two-for-one. Right. Well, and Connive always works, right? The, yes. ri- the ring doesn't always work. I think that's why in this format, and maybe as people get better with playing with the ring, this will be less of a thing. But so far, people, I think some people have figured it out, but not enough that... I think if you're struggling, the number one thing I would say is you got to tempt the ring more. Just bump up everything that says ring temps on it. We were just talking about this, the, the I forget its name, but the five mana four, three in white ETBs ring temps. And then whenever you draw your second card each turn, uh, it gets plus one, plus one counter. I thought that card was just stone unplayable. And it's not great, but that's the kind of thing where you're like, okay, you would actually play a five mana four, three in white just because it says ring temps. Well, and also because it's a five mana five four, assuming if you're playing that, you should have eight to nine ring temps. Yes. And then when you cast it, you should be looting. Yes. And it will immediately turn into a five four. Agreed. So past SNC, we've got Neo, Sagas, like that format oozed value and everyone had access to it. And we talked about this enough because ring temps is similar enough to blood tokens, but moving backwards to Crimson Val, blood. And not every color had access to blood, but you really felt it, right? It was it was so easy when you're like, well, I'm red, black, and I have I made eight blood tokens this game, and you made two. Well, you can sort of guess who's winning that game. And prior to that, mid, you had organ hoarder, you had flashback, you had disturb. It's been a while. That's going back two years now. Well, and the unique thing about this format is that black, I think, is still the best. But Black's capable of running out of gas, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's the weird matchup. Usually, you know, if getting cards is good, that's the best thing to do. But I don't think it is necessarily here. But as Black gets more contested and you can't, you know, play it as easily, all of a sudden control decks look really darn good. Well, and something that I think I've taken for granted because you've been, you know, just talking my ear off about Arwen's <laughs> gift and Lorian revealed so much is I've been like, oh my God, but the format is full of two for ones. But it it really isn't. It's not. It's tough. I I went and looked after we had been talking about it, and we've kind of got a list here of of cards that I think, you know, two for ones or ring tempting, but just ways to get edges as the game goes longer. And it's not a long list at commons and uncommons. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me. What do we got? Okay. So if we're talking ring tempting as ways to not run out of gas, I think you consistently want to get the ring up to level two which means you're wanting like six, seven, eight, nine ways to ring tempt or ways that ring tempt twice, like mm-hmm. Bilbo on ETB and leaving, mm-hmm. like just to be able to definitely do the thing. So 
First, tempt engines, like potentially where you're turbo tempting or getting more than one temp per card. So you've got Golem, Patient Plotter, like combining that and Sacrifice Engines. Yeah, you got that with Haunt or whatever, some Amass tokens. Okay. And then you got Frodo, Legendaries. We've seen how effective that can be, I mm-hmm. think, on the opposing side of the battlefield and ours I yeah. think, this week. Samwise times two. You found that early on. I've had the pleasure of doing it. Like that, joop, 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 joop. Yeah. You're just up to level four of the ring. That's so we're, ta- awesome. we're talking about the one in a white Samwise is stout-hearted. It has flash and there's a battlefield. You return a permanent card from your graveyard that went there from the battlefield this turn and then the ring tempts you. And so what you can do is Samwise legend rules himself and then you get to grab the one that went to the graveyard with the one that just came into the battlefield. And that does work. I was very paranoid about doing it the first <laughs> time, but can confirm. I didn't know it was, I didn't, I thought, I was like, I think this is going to work, but it was early access. So I just got to say, hey, <laughs> let's find out. Let's do it. See what happens. And then Bilbo Baggins, the blue-red uncommon one. Those mm. are the only ways to really consistently multi-tempt, I think. Yeah. And then that's not a lot. Yeah. So you, you've got that. And then you've got obviously all the other cards that have tempt stapled onto them. But then you've got the blue card draw. Glory's Revealed, Arwen's Gift, you name it. Bath Song. Bath Song. Jonah, Bubble Bath, me, <laughs> Bubble Bath. We just, had, we just had a grand old time here this weekend. That's right. Aaron Ryder of Gondor. I, we've had this as the number one white common. I don't think we've really talked about why or how busted this card is. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's specifically busted. If your value be like, it goes hand in hand with the ring tempting, right? Because that just gives you virtual legends is great. It's one of the reasons why green white as a base for this multicolor legends soup deck is so good is because you get this. I mean, it's just, it's whatever it's Serral's pack made. It's organ hoarder. Like it's just body plus card. And it's honestly, it's just so much better than I thought it was going to be when it, when you don't even have the legend, like yeah. three mana, three, two loot is really good. It's a ring tent, right? Like in red, white, mm-hmm. like you're totally fine to run that out as a 3-2 human that lets you ditch yes. an extra land. Absolutely. And that's an important piece for red-white decks not running out of gas. Preferably you've got the legendaries because then you get an actual card to hopefully get your ring tempt going to pitch the land of the ring tent. But either way, card is really important to white decks. And you, sh- if you're picking Aaron Riders of Gondor, if it's not good for you, you're doing something way wrong in how you're <laughs> building your decks. Like yeah. You should be valuing legends. You should be valuing ring tempting. You should be valuing human synergies. Okay. You got Faramir, Field Commander. It's a pet card of yours. That's the white uncommon one that when you tempt, you get a 1-1. And when something dies, you draw a card. Yeah, it's hard to make that work outside of black-white. Like, it's best friends with Denethor and really hard to make that, like, an engine in any other deck. Yeah, we've got Mirror of Galadriel in the Legends deck. But again, that's, like, a very specific... Like, you gotta do a lot of work to get Mirror of Galadriel going. For sure. And then there's Nasty End, which again, we talked about this. That's why I value it so highly, because black gets a way to draw two cards, three cards. Presumably you're building your deck right. You've got Ring Tempt on a 1-1. Nasty End in black decks that don't pair with blue, crazy, crazy important to have access to a copy or two. Mm -hmm. And then there's Coral's End, red decks, really, I think, non-red-white decks. And you'll even play it in red-white because you get the human. Red decks that don't, again, have access to card draw from other colors really need Coral's End to not flood. Coral's End is excellent. Excellent card. And then Gandalf, Friend of the Shire, you know, you got some ring tempting, you get those extra cards flowing. Extra cards means more pitches to the loots of the ring. All of these cards, like the, the things that feel repeatable, like Faramir, I mean, you just sort of have to maybe give it credit, especially if your opponent's in black-white. Gandalf, Friend of the Shire, for sure. Thinking about Frodo, thinking about Bilbo Baggins. They feel like must-kill on-site yeah. cards to me. Absolutely. Be- but it's because of this, because there's like this sense of like, 
I'm going along, I'm one for oneing, you're one for oneing, we're having fun, and then your opponent plays this thing that's like, I'm about to do some busted stuff if you don't mess with this. Yeah, and they're all uncommons too, for the most part, which right. is why I think you and I are both advocating for taking a lot of these cards out of packs, even if you're not in their colors, because putting a shell around enough of these cards that can get card advantage or get two for ones, great way to win a game of Magic. Yeah, I, mean, I had a coaching session today. Someone passed Gandalf Sanction, the, the blue-red, you know, sort of Zenith Flare variant that we've talked about for something like a single-colored card, a really, a really strong card uh, that was single-colored, but that is just not as powerful as Sanction. And one of the reasons Sanction is so powerful is because of how much of a stamp it puts on your deck. Once you have that, so many of the, you know, Quarrel's End goes up in value. The, the Treason of Isengard suddenly becomes really good. You just get to do the, the you know, you want Lorien Reveals and you're happy to cycle them. All of this stuff falls into place because of this one card. And that's what a lot of these other cards do as well. Right, well, and, you know, that's kind of the end of the list as far as card advantage goes there. That's There's, so short. It's so short because outside of Ring Tempt and the blue card draw, it's like, five or six cards yikes yeah and then you know we take a look at some engines potentially that you can build i know you're a huge fan of denethor ruling steward love a denethor love to sacrifice a, a creature to drain my opponent love to get a free one one at the end of my turn it's great yeah Urkenbrand, lord of westfold big way i think i'm a believer i'm a convert you have picked it enough times and i've been doubting and it's been great <laughs> after this week it's a three 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 and a red that whenever a human enters the battlefield under control your team gets plus one plus oh until end of turn. Card is enough, enough humans. I mean, certainly Rally is great with it. Aemur is busted with it. The 5-4 haste that makes a 1-1 one, one if 5 is the greatest power among all creatures. Like, Curving it into shadow facts, into dumping a human. There's just a lot of gross things you can do. Yeah. And again, that's not like a card it's advantage. It's not really an engine. Yeah, it's yeah. not really an engine, but it, it gets the game over with so that none of that matters. Sure. Like it, it gives red-white decks punch. Yes. Like to get the game done before the, the control deck can get online. Yeah. Haunted the Dead Marshes, again, in black, like I think all black decks we've said want a copy of that card, but we haven't really said why. It's because you can build an engine with Gollum Patient Plotter or your Denethor Ruling Steward. It just is a way to get a piece of cardboard moving through some zones to accrue uh, some card advantage. And also, as a 1-1, I think, I, I think I'm happier with 1-1s as my Ring Tempters than you, and for, for good reason that you're skeptical of 1-1s as... as ring bearers i should say um because they get blanked by one three so easily but you know if you're able one of the things that black does so well is clears the way so that one ones are effective ring bearers and can get can attack profitably but haunt not only as a one one itself bears the ring well but also is just i just love a good chuck it in the bin for my my chapter two or level two loot and then rebuy it later and that's some good free value as well for sure We've got Maneldor Swift Savior. This is another card that I've been, I think, converted on fully this week that is just a good card. The 3-3 three, three Flyer, and when it connects, you can blink something. That's a way to overturns accrue repeated value. We, we won a game that we had no business winning by blinking a mouth of Sauron and just milling our opponent out. Yes, completely. And then Rosie Cotton is another one. This is just We talked about it last week, but ways to build engines to accrue value as the game's going along. Mm -hmm. Rosie's yeah. just a great thing in combination with tokens. It's a legend. It just does a lot of that stuff. Okay, so what are some other ways other than just like raw drawing cards that can give you two-for-ones in the format? Because that's not all we're talking about. Right, we're talking about cards that actually are like two-for-ones, either making two bodies on your side of the battlefield. Two rectangles? Two rectangles, could you say? <laughs> Rectangle theory. Or, you know, like Flame Tongue Kabu-esque effects where something comes in and kills something else. Sure. So we get done Linker Bane. I, I would, at this point, just 
call that a two for one. Yeah. One one flyer plus the two two feels like two great pieces of cardboard. Agreed. Aomer, we've sang its praises. That card is a beating. Yeah. Like it just Aomer, ends the game so quickly. If you have the opportunity to pick it, you should be trying to get it in your deck, I think. Like MJ, we played against MJ on a blue white deck and he like did we some were, stuff. We were derping with Bath Song. He was derping with Bath Song. We thought we were going along <laughs> just fine. And then Aramur hit the battlefield and we were like, oh. Just out of nowhere on yeah. a splash. Like did some stuff on our end step and just savaged us. Yeah. Card is card is insane. Four of Orcs, speaking of Flame Tongue Kabu effects, that's the three in a red. Amass two and then deal damage equal to your Amass army to target opponent's creature. That's a classic two for one. And that type of card is so good in control decks because it just... Says your opponent's getting out to a fast start. Nope. You kill one of their aggressive creatures and then also have a blocker for one of their aggressive mm-hmm. creatures. Gothmog, Morgul Lieutenant. We saw that at the start of our draft. The 3-3 plus the 1-1 Death Toucher. That one makes me a little nervous sometimes because if you're planning on using the Death Toucher, sometimes your opponent can mess with the Gothmog. But as you've pointed out, it's still, still just a one for one. Still just a one for one. Yeah. Feels feels worse than that in my heart, though. I, I will say what's interesting about Gothmog is that I feel like it almost gets worse. Like, it's better the less a mass you have, which is interesting because I feel like it, I don't want to curve Dunlin Crabane into Gothmog a lot, right? I don't want I don't want a 3-3 death touch, right? I want those separate pieces of cardboard, you know? Um, but still, yeah, definitely a two-for-one. Rise of the Witch King. This is a card, I think, Specifically this week, I think the format's already shifting to where Rise of the Witch King is a viable card and a good card. It's the two black green sorcery. Each player sacrifices a creature. If you were one of those people to sacrifice a creature, you get to put a creature from your graveyard back onto the battlefield. You know, you're going to get forced into some multicolor soup decks that are base green, probably have some black cards because black's great. You know, those land cyclers you want. It's a great way to make a sort of two for one out of a, a great green black gold card. Yeah. Saruman's Trickery, we talked about it. Mystic Snake, credit to Eric Klug. Shout yeah. out to him for opening my eyes. Card is just Mystic Snake. One blue blue, make a 1-1 one, one body, and counter target spell. Getting board presence while you're countering a spell, pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Mouth of Sauron, the 3-4, a mass equals number of spells. That card is just insane. Great in blue-black. I think also just an awesome splash in blue-red spells decks. Almost a, better as a splash in blue-red spells, I think. Yeah, for sure. And then Torment of Gollum. This card we haven't talked about much. Again, there's not a ton of ways to two for one. It's a way to do it at common. Three and a black, a mass two, look at your opponent's hand. You get to take any card out of it. And again, so many of the cards are critical. When you play Torment and yeah. you nab one of their two for ones or you nab their card draw spell. Or just taking, again, one one piece of cardboard away from them in terms of their ability to loot with the ring bear is huge. Yeah. And Voracious Fell Beast, I think also. I think we poo-pooed this in the set review. Card's, yeah. card's good. Oh, Six yeah. mana, four, four flyer. Your opponent sacks something when ETBs. If they do, you make a food token. Fairly short list, I think, compared to most formats as far as how to two for one. And this opponent. is all the commons and uncommons. You you pour it over the list, and this is all you came up with. Yeah, I mean, there's it's not, not a, there's not a ton. Yeah, you definitely can run out of steam, and it's also possible to just like, if you get a suboptimal version of the deck, have your opponent play like three or four cards that were better than your cards, and the game's kind of over. Yeah. And I want to really go back to, as we wrap up the episode, go back to that recipe that you outlined, the ingredients for control decks. Because I think the flip side of this is I don't want folks to walk away from this going, okay, as long as I just draft all the two for ones and three for ones that I can, I'm going to have a good deck. Because you and I drafted a blue black deck and you were like, this deck is is good. Why is it losing? I was like, this deck is really clunky. It's like, (laughs) has a lot of cards that you like, a lot of cards that are powerful, a Bat Song, a couple Orion Revealed, an Arwen's Gift, 
you know, it did things, but it really struggled to, it didn't have, it wasn't a good recipe. You need a little <laughs> bit more salt, a little bit more uh, defensive speed, a little bit more <laughs> removal. That was a big thing that deck was that lacking, was a big right? That deck was lacking. And so those ingredients, thinking about that recipe is really important as I think our, our big takeaway for this episode is control is good in this format. Valuing two for ones and three for ones, if you get them, is really important in this format. But that's not the only piece of the puzzle. Don't get lost in that sauce. There's more ingredients to the sauce. Well, and I think, too, to shout it out and just to reiterate, because I feel like something that happens a lot with our episodes is we're advocating for a thing. And then people say, well, you said the other thing is terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, aggro is potent. Great aggro decks are very good in this format. And I think mid-range even more so is really strong, especially mm-hmm. if you're mid-range with some of these two-for-ones that are not like Arwen's Gift, but that are the board-affecting two-for-ones. Yeah, four of Orcs or whatever. Right. Yeah. Those mid-range decks that pack that, plus some ring-tempting, or like the blue-red aggro ring-tempt deck, those are, you know, you're ring-tempting, so you're making sure you're not running out of gas, and then also doing these board effecting two for ones and you're closing the game out, not like a control deck would, but just I think more than anything, even more than the control deck outline, you got to make sure that you don't run out of gas or that you have a premium aggro deck. Yeah. Or play control. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> to medium results. <laughs> wow. No, ben, ben does great when I am not heckling him while he's dealing with Twitch chat. And my son is crying in his ear. And impressions left and right. Like there's been, we've had a time here in Pittsburgh this week. <laughs> what a great time. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say great success for our first uh, face-to-face episode. Yeah. I think this was the, our, the biggest test our friendship has faced. The most non-magic time. That's true. That we have been faced with in six years. And I was worried that I would be doing way more hand gestures than you. But you've got, you've got a fair bit. Oh, for the video? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm a hand talker. I oh, I just, I, it's not just for the video. This is what I do at my desktop when I'm just facing. You're, you're giving some glances to the camera, though. There's some there's finger some, guns. some finger guns. There's some performing. Yeah. And I will say, Jonah, sweetest baby boy. Oh, my gosh. I think I've, I, I have held him awkwardly out at arm length. That's true. When I met him and I was like, hello, hello child. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> yes, hello. Okay, I'm going to give you back to your father here. Yeah. I'm, we had some sweet Uncle Ben moments. We did. In the past few days. Yeah, it's been great. So very, very happy to have you. And I'm looking forward to seeing your face on the episode next week as well. Absolutely. All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to CoolStuffInc.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking for anywhere on the internet to buy Magic cards, look no further than Cool Stuff Inc., where they've got cool stuff in stock. When you check out there, use code LOL to let them know we sent you over there, and more importantly, to get 5% off anything you purchase. You can check all of our content out on our website at lordsunlimited.com. We've got our tier list. We've got our streams. We've got our YouTube channel. We've got our merch. We've got all of our episodes, of course, lordsoflimited.com. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
But then you can also do blue-red spells where your finisher is Gandalf Sanction, yes. which is the one blue-red deal damage to a creature equal to the number of instant sorceries in your card, and the excess damage goes face. Those Did decks, you say in your car? Number, number of in- cars. Number of instant sorceries in your car. Is, <laughs> <you> just, <laughs> is it? You just said. I'll try it again. Let's I'll take, take that it. again. Take two. 